Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens and My Time Capsule is the podcast where my guests tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to have in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish but they also pick one thing that they'd like to forget. Something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor Mina Anwar, who came to fame playing PC Maggie Habib in the Ben Elton comedy The Thin Blue Line with Rowan Atkinson. She was also in the film Infidel with Omid Jalili and Matt Lucas, Coronation Street, Holby City, Doctors and Nurses, The Bill, Razzle Dazzle, Shameless, Upstart Crow, The Invisibles, The Sarah Jane Adventures, Scoop, 106 episodes of House of Anubis, The Brilliant Happy Valley with James Norton and Sarah in Lancashire, In the Club, Marley's Ghost, The Worst Witch, Terms and Conditions, and Doctor Who. Not bad, eh? In 2017, she originated the role of Ray in the new musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie at the Crucible Theatre. Sheffield and continued her role for the West End transfer. And Mina has just finished a long run in the West End in the life of Pi. Yeah, I did a long run in the West End once, the London Marathon. Anyway, Mina is a classically trained mezzo-soprano and she sings big band jazz and backing vocals on occasions for the charlatans. And that is, quite honestly, a very brief list and only the jobs, of course, from the many wonderful things Mina's done in her life. But which of the five she will choose to put in a time capsule? Well, let's find out, shall we? Well, of course, I already know because I was there when she told me. So it's your turn. In fact, here's the lovely Mina Anwar. It's recording now. It's already eating up your memory. (laughs) (laughs) Which is no good at all because this is all about memory. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it was quite interesting. It was really interesting trying to narrow it down. At first I was thinking... I can't think of like four things. <laughs> but then I kind of, as you go, kind of a bit more lateral with it. Because I'm not a particularly materialistic person. But at the same time, I, you know, memories mean a lot and, and experiences mean a lot. So, you know, the fact that there's concepts and memories and music means I've been singing since I was like four years old. Yeah, you're properly trained, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, I started singing. I was born and bred in Lancashire. I'm from Accrington. Yeah. So I went to. Ernest Street Baptist Infant School. But I just remember like listening to hymns and singing really loud because I loved the sound of it. It was funny because I was just doing a play with Les Dennis, just uh, Spring and Port Wine at Bolton Octagon. And my old teacher, Mrs. Ford, from my infant school, came to watch the play. Oh, my God. And I hadn't seen her since I was like, so it's like 40-odd years, 48 years, something like that. So she would have been young, Mrs. Ford. Yeah, she was just starting, really. And the headmistress of our little infant school was Mrs. Ogilvy, who to me was extraordinary because our infant school was like a, to me, I can only describe it like a Montessori school. Uh-huh. Because we not only did we like do our spelling and maths and, you know, all of that, but we also learned how to do creative dancing. <laughs> we sang a lot. We did like, had a choir. 
We used to do this May Day dance thing to Peergint every single year where you're doing kind of free movement. We used to listen to the BBC radio schools, learn how to read music, all of those things. And I just think, oh my God, you know, but also at the same time, you know, really having a grounding in literacy and arithmetic and it was quite an extraordinary school. And she came to see the play and she said, oh, you were always, st- I remember you standing there with two friends, Caroline and Wendy, we used to stand three of us together. She said, and you used to sing really loud around the piano. And then um, we thought we'd separate you. So because you sang loud, you were really confident, even at like four or five years old, <laughs> that we'd separate you to encourage other people to sing, which was like, I remember that as well. It was just, it's quite brilliant, really. Yeah. Yeah. So music has always meant a lot to me. And I got a scholarship to train classically when I went to Manby. I went to Manby in 1988. We had a full conservatoire of training there as well because we had a full classical acting training. Wow. And a full MT training at the same time. And then they split those courses in two. So we did Stanislavski and Grotowski on one side, doing all the classics and learning our craft in acting, but at the same time in classical singing lessons and learning jazz and tai chi and movement and contemporary dance and all sorts of things. So so it's really hard to know what to put in a capsule. Yeah. But I have got a few things. The first one is, I think, something that has obviously been part of my life now. I've been as a professional actor like 32 years in March this year. And even before that, having the arts meaning so much about how I learned about myself. And I think I'd like to put in there, I suppose, either physical drama masks, you know, the kind of the comedy and the tragedy masks. Yeah. Or the concept of what they mean, really, even metaphorically about who we are, the two sides of human beings. Yeah. We can put them in to represent that. Yeah. And I think it's because they've always meant a lot conceptually as well to me about how we can, you know, show a vulnerability and try to be as open and as vulnerable as possible on stage. And even though that takes, I think, lifelong experience to get to a point where you can be more and more free like that on stage, to me has always been an exploration that's part of what I do. And the play I just did with Les Dennis, um, Spring and Port Wine, is a completely brilliant part for both of those things. It's it's completely physical comedy farce in one sense. Yeah. And at the same time, a woman who's hiding a lot of hidden frustrations and because it's a woman who's married in the 60s with these kids. And I think the drama masks have always, I suppose that's a kind of the balance to me metaphorically of life as well. The learning how to see all sides of yourself and also have the courage to experience it as well, even in terms of kind of like mental health work as well. I did a BSc in psychology at the Open University when I was 40. I decided to uh, do a science degree. <laughs> but it's because I think that the, the exploration of, you know, understanding the human condition is always something that I've wanted to do from all sides of my brain, if you like. Mm, yeah, I do. To understand it on a kind of academic level, but also then how to channel that creatively. And I think actors need those two sides of the brain working together, really. Yeah. You're always doing that, aren't you, when you're on stage? You are allowing yourself to be free and trying to let the emotions be genuine. And you're concentrating on the other person and trying to listen. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the part of your brain is analysing exactly what's happening and what is about to happen. Putting away, that worked well, that didn't work well, and I took too long over that. You're giving yourself notes all the time as well, aren't you? Yeah. And also my seminal teacher at drama school, Sam Cogan who was Russian, and I think his teacher was a pupil of Stanislavski, and he started a school of the science of acting. In his training, I remember always thinking, he always talked about finishing off your thinking as well. You have to understand yourself in order for those unfinished sides of yourself not to impede the progress of a character coming through you. And I've, I've always found that really fascinating because suddenly you find yourself stuck somewhere. And, you know, always what we do is go, I think it's them. But actually, if you look back at yourself, you might realise that it's something that that you could be a little bit freer about, mm-hmm. just to try to understand. Yes, no, it's a bad habit, I think, to assume that you're not doing it well because people are in your way. Yeah, which is a youthful thing, I think. So when I'm teaching or directing students particularly, I always, there's a way of going, well, if they did that, then I can do this. And you go, well, no. Let's try and explore how this works kind of synergistically. How yeah. do you respond to something that... Because in life, you're not aware of how someone's going to react to you. So why should you be on stage? Uh-huh. You don't always have to know where it's going. And I think that's that's the joy of working with people is not knowing what on that particular performance how someone's going to come and and they might find a new way of speaking or 
or a new yeah. way of thinking or a thought that's like minute that just adds a little something. It often is minute, isn't it? And actually yeah. when you're doing these things, because you've done it in such detail and you've done it so many times, the slightest change can be quite mammoth, I think. Yeah. And remarkable if you're up if you're there right in the present moment, it can be you just suddenly go, That's interesting where that went. Yeah. You know? Rather than being like, I don't understand change, I don't want it to change, otherwise I might be exposed on stage, not knowing where to go. But actually, you just kind of let go and see what happens. That's the joy of it. Yeah. I mean, I've spent a year in the West End doing Life of Pi, so I did 304 shows of that or something like that. And that was very physical and very emotional and and set in India, but also did puppetry and it was like, I I cried every day, got trampled by a zebra, got strangled at the end, you know, every 304 strangulations. And that's not including the uh, the fight calls, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really interesting to have done that and just to keep wanting to turn up and be present. We just did like three and a half weeks of the play we've just finished at Bolton. And that's very interesting because it's in the round. So the possibilities are endless in the round. I absolutely yeah. love working in the round because it's so much freedom. Yeah. You know, you can just do a 360 turn and make it real without even thinking about everywhere you turn and someone's looking at you. Yeah. Every single angle of you is being watched. And I find that just so, some people terrify some people because they don't understand it. They don't understand the freedom of that, the freedom of movement in a space like that is quite beautiful. You're so used to the idea that acting involves you being seen, your face being seen, but actually you can act with your back. Yeah, exactly. Even just, you know, a shoulder movement. like it's, We were always taught to drama school about being fully alive in all of your body. Yeah. And that this psychological gestures are happen every, in every bit of you, as we do in life, you know. Mm. It's interesting to choose the mask, because I've always felt that they represent the two sides of acting, the comedy and the tragedy. But actually, they always show them crossing. Yeah. Because I think those two sides are actually joined. You know, you yeah. can't do one without the other. It's like Taoism in a way, you... You have to be the moving and the still. I think Nigel Planer once said to me about, you know, and he's a dear friend about the fact that he teaches comedy workshops as if they're tragedy workshops. Yeah. He teaches the other way around in order mm-hmm. to understand. Like they're doing some of these kind of psychology workshops as well, of understanding how we create stories and live inside our own stories. Understanding how much of that story you've created yourself. My wife's always accusing me of writing stories. She said, <laughs> you write stories about everything. I come up the road, I see one little aspect of a situation, I say, you know what's happened there? And I'll tell you a massive story about what's going on. She said, you don't know that's true at all, you've just written it. I like that. Dave Dave always says it's like speculating. He always, you like speculating. I go, yeah, Yeah. that's that's how I like occupational hazard. (laughs) I need to have a hypothesise about what might have happened or what might happen after. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we do as actors. We don't just see the facts we also create the imaginary world around. Let's put those masks in then as your first thing yeah, nice. into the time capsule. That's lovely. Your school choir, gone. I had a teacher in my school choir who gave me the very big role, and I remembered at the time thinking how important it was, of banging the drum during Little Drummer Boy at Christmas. Wow. And we did it for four or five rehearsals, and then she replaced me with someone else. No. Why? She said I was speeding up. And to this day, Mina, I will swear, because I said it to her when she replaced me, I said, no, you're slowing down. Like every drummer would say. Yeah, that's the sort of five-year-old I was. <laughs> Listen, you've got to have a good rhythm section, though. Yeah. As I know, I've been a jazzer, and my husband being a pianist. If you haven't got a good drummer. The drummer ought to be leading the band, not her, if she's going to pop me That's there. what all drummers think. <laughs> <laughs> There's a definitely a musician's joke in that. Yeah. It's control, controlling. That's <laughs> clearly what she wanted. Yeah. She wanted to be in charge. She wanted actually to drum, but she was too old. <laughs> okay, let's move on to the next thing, see what else you've got. So, as soon as we're talking about singing, because songs, are, music is everything to me. Um oh. Absolutely everything. Every you know, I've sing I've been singing jazz since I was sixteen. You know, I used to sing in the working men's clubs in the eighties before I trained as a because I didn't really want to be an actor. I wanted to be a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to actually sing j- songs, tell stories through song and do science. That's what how I grew up. That's all I wanted to do. 
and maybe open a healing centre. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Right. Be an anthropologist or an archaeologist and j- sing jazz. <laughs> That's literally all I wanted to do. So, so music was everything. Before acting, but I used to tell the stories. I always loved singers that had storytelling skills. So grew up listening to like Kate Bush, Ella Fitzgerald, Edith Piaf. And one song I loved growing up in my teenage years was this song called Song to the Siren. It was written by Tim Buckley, Jeff Buckley's father. But the version that I loved was by this singer from the Cocteau Twins, Elizabeth Fraser. I don't even remember her Scottish blonde woman. She had the most beautiful ethereal voice. No, I don't remember. Her version of Song to the Siren. I was thinking, so I'd choose either a Kate Bush. I remember going to school when I was nine, taking a copy of Paganini. Because <laughs> Kate Bush did this song about Paganini that was like mad, called Violin, that was like insane. <laughs> and I was like, nine, I went, I'm going to sing this for you. Yeah. And my teacher went, go on then. Because I just <laughs> loved singing all these kind of mad things, you know. But this was such a beautiful song. And my growing up, my there were seven of us, brothers and sisters, but my brother was like a self-taught guitarist. Uh-huh. And he was brilliant. He never he went down the path of doing a professional like me, but he was amazing. And he became a bus driver. He, he did lots of things, actually. I went down and then trained at drama school. But we used to have um, a little band. So I used to sing or write melodies to poetry. Yeah. And we used to just... And we, I remember we used to listen to John Peel. And the Cocteau Twins were quite, you know, her voice was so beautiful, Elizabeth Fraser. And she was in this band called This Mortal Coil. And they did a version of this song, Song to the Siren. And I think Dawn French chose this song, actually, for her Desert Island Discs. Oh. But it's so beautiful when you hear it. Every time I hear it, it'll stop me. It suspends you in time until it's finished. It's very short. Uh-huh. And it's very simple. And it's beautiful. And it's, it is like a calling. But, the, you know, you think, what song, if something was on and, and you could listen to it till the end of time, I think uh-huh. that would be the one I would listen to. Do you want me to play you some of hers or I'm not allowed? Yeah, go on, that'd be all right. I'm sure she won't sue. No. And it's so beautiful as well. On the floating voice is so it's like to me because singing has always been like my instrument is I played like try to play trumpet at school because we had a school that allowed us to have lots of ways to express our artistry if we wanted uh-huh. but um singing was always the thing and when you hear voices like that so evocative of the story they're telling as well yeah yeah it's very very beautiful and I thought if I was to dig up my time capsule or somebody to dig that up and heard that is effortless, isn't it? Uh, because it, to me, singing is breath. Breath is life. Uh-huh. Singing has always been like that for me. You know, an expression of, if I feel nervous, I was saying, you know, I just sang a little bit of Largo in the play I've just been doing. And, you know, I train classically, but also I've done a lot of rock operas and rock singing and soul and managed to be able to go in, in and out of all the genres, actually, because that's how, what I've done in my life. Yeah. And musical theatre and... And it, what's interesting is to be able to have a voice that serves you as well and the voice that, that you can access emotionally because uh-huh. you've got to access the emotion in your voice. You've got to have a connect and feel and, in order to be part of the storytelling. Yes, there are some people who have an extraordinary instrument, but it's really clinical. Because that's why some people, doesn't move, it doesn't move you. You can hear them yep. and you go, wow, that's extraordinary. Three, four, five octaves. Amazing, but... But you won't shed a tear at it. No. Because music... It's the vibrations, it either touch you or it doesn't. That's kind of sometimes why I trained in musical theatre and acting but never did a lot of it because I didn't want to be moulded and be the same. I wanted my voice to be unique because everyone's voice is unique. But, you know, in the early 90s, nobody was really... Firstly, there was hardly any Asian people 
and getting the parts because there wasn't any. No. I remember auditioning for Les Mis right back at the beginning in the 90s and having four or five auditions for that and being told that they didn't have any Asians and they never had any. Being told that to my face, that they'd they'd never had any Asian people. And would I like to be in Miss Saigon? And I went, not really. I don't like Miss Saigon. No. Never liked it. Did you point out to them that none of the cast were French? Cameron McIntosh did say, but to be honest, she looks more French than anybody in the cast. Uh-huh. But it's then it's like, you know, and where have we got to now? We've got Hamilton and also just got two black leads in, in Wiki. That's taken yeah. a long time, you know, to understand. Yeah. And you just think, you know, when I came out of drama school, like completely armed to the hilt with skills, you know, whether I was doing a Beckett or a Shakespeare or an Ionesco or a thing or a Ibsen, or, you know, I'd just done Fiddler on the Roof, I'd done quite a lot of musicals, The Little Sharp. You know, you come out thinking, I never thought that my ethnicity would be anything. If anything, I thought my northernness would be the thing. Right. My working class background would be the thing. Yeah. <laughs> because they always said to me, you know, you'll never work with that accent. And I went, well, this is me, um, oh. but I can do any other accent. I will learn the other accents like their accents. I said, but I'm, I'm not really going to change my voice no. to suit. And actually, strange, and then audition for Ben Elton, and he absolutely fell off his chair that I spoke like this. Yeah. Jeremy, <laughs> you can't <laughs> believe that I was a northerner. And he said, that's, that's hilarious, that accent you've got. I said, that's rude. First, it's rude. <laughs> Secondly, rude, isn't it? It, it is funny. And he just, it was like an incongruous, because then it was like, can you see regional accents on people of colour was just not there in the 80s, 90s, especially no. when I came out of drama school, 91. And now in the Thin Blue Line, I was like the first, firstly the first Asian in a kind of mainstream sitcom. Yeah. But also challenging the stereotypes of people, which is, uh-huh. can this person, is this a narrative that belongs in the world? An Asian woman who's northern. In the police force. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, who speaks like this, who's funny, but also very serious. Uh-huh. You know, and then you challenge what narratives belong to you. Because all our narratives, if it exists in the world, I think then it belongs somewhere. You can believe it. Yeah. I don't think we should always spoon feed the same narrative to people. Because I think, you know, there are, you just go, oh, I wonder if that, is that a real thing? Yes, it is. Right. Oh. Then you be, it's legitimately, you can put that on screen or on stage, I think. Yeah, you could put almost any combination of anything. You're yeah. going to find it if you look. I mean, even look at Doctor Who, you know. Yeah. Because I was in, in Sarah Jane Adventures, I would have been asked at one of these Comic-Cons about what do you feel about the prospect of a female Doctor. I said, well, Doctor Who is about fiction. It's about living into a future that you're creating yourself. Yeah. So why wouldn't you create a future like that? Because you have all the power to create a fictional world mm. that you want to live into. So that's the joy of Doctor Who for me. I'm a huge Doctor Who fan as well. It's sad that they didn't do it earlier. Yes, and you are finally feeling that that's happening, that it's finally breaking through. I mean, Tracy Ann Oberman is playing uh, Shylock at the moment. Yeah, in the, the 1936. Yeah. Yeah, it's just about creating doors. If you, do, if you can't bang the door open, then just create a new door. That's yes. what I think. And actually, rather encouragingly, it's not really been those actors who've made it happen. You know, it's been other people saying, do you know what, hang on a minute, this is not fair. No. And then people start having those conversations. Mm -hmm. Like I always think, you know, I've always had conversations with with directors or writers about projects where I think, you know, there's been kind of tokenism or stereotypes. Yeah. Kay Miller being particularly one I worked with a lot, who was very open to understanding how, you know, Asians lived in the North. And how we could represent them differently on on the screen. Yeah, yeah. So she was very open to that. At a time when the whole idea of otherness is being sort of denigrated all over the place and being presented as something dangerous, something we need to protect ourselves against, you sort of go, well, that representation is really important. It's important that people see yeah. those representations, see that representation of Britishness particularly. Exactly. And also just that thing of... People not always having to carry the politics, just being a human being. Yeah. It's like this spring in port wine. It's interesting that you could go down a road where, you know, you make everything really Asian, which I hate, you know. And my mum didn't have one Asian thing on the wall. We certainly didn't have, like, elephants and stuff, you know. <laughs> and I always think that people go, oh, what do you mean? You could just could have put some elephants on the wall and put some spices on the table. 
you know, then people know that I'm Asian, right? Yeah. Let's not <laughs> yeah, do that. Quite. Let's just play a person. You just play a person, play a human being, and somebody will understand what I'm living through as opposed to looking at me and wondering how I can exist in this world. And you need to be able to have that conversation without it being a kind of militant thing. Otherwise, no one will listen to us. No one will give us our rights, you know. (laughs) But sometimes that fight can be, you know, done with flowers as opposed to, you know, having to punch people in the face. Yeah, exactly. Well, you can always (laughs) sing a song to a siren. Sing a song to the siren. See them. Disarm them. Yeah. Yeah. Come at them in left field. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That was a very good segue there. Was it? That didn't sound like an old DJ. (laughs) Nothing wrong with an old DJ. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mina, let's move on to number three. Okie dokie, time for an ad break. We'll be back very soon. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back. Unless you're an Acast Plus subscriber, in which case you haven't had an ad break and you're already listening to the rest of the episode. Still, let's catch them up, shall we? Here are the rest of the things that Mina Anwar would like to have in her time capsule. Number three for me. So I'd just like to pay homage to my mom, actually. Yeah. So my mom was born in India, as my parents were both born in India before partition. Uh-huh. As she was quite a devout Muslim. So she came from a very kind of Sufi background, my mom. Uh-huh. And we grew up, you know, going to Arabic school when we were four. We used to go after school, go to Arabic school uh-huh. to learn how to read the Quran and everything when we were like five. And she passed away in like 2013. And whenever I'm in a dressing room, I will take two things. What is this thing? It's a set of prayer beads, which is my mom's, was it, my mom's. Uh, That's her, was her prayer beads. Uh-huh. And when you have a, like a Muslim burial, so you have to anoint the body and the shroud in deep perfume because in the Quran it says that the person who's coming to gather your spirit needs to follow the scent and then is able to then guide you to the afterlife. So, uh-huh. And she was anointed in this, what's called, it's an attar called Majmua, which is a which is a very beautiful scent, actually. Powerful, then. It's a tiny bottle. Yeah, very beautiful. And I think just, I think if somebody were to pick those two things up and have a story of, you know, someone that, that you know, we didn't always have a great relationship, me and my mom, I think because we were very similar, and I wanted to be an actor, and she didn't really want, she didn't really understand that. No. Even though my parents are always deeply into getting us off to school on time, and, I mean, my sister is a teacher, She's been teaching at our old school for like 30 years, huh. you know, and we've got degrees coming out of our ears and, you know, we've <laughs> got nano levels and A yeah. levels and degree, you know. And open university degrees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Science yeah. degree, arts degrees, all sorts of things. <laughs> um, and it's very interesting because we're just, and we're all very different siblings, the seven of us. And she grew up, you know, came over to England at a time that was very, as did my dad in the 60s, that was very challenging for people who... Firstly, immigrants who came over. Secondly, like my dad was invited over to work, which is when people were invited over the late, at uh, the early 60s, uh-huh. to come and join the workforce. 
And my mum came over, couldn't speak English, but could read the Quran in three languages <laughs> that weren't English. You know, what we think about academia. Mm. And actually she was very scholarly. She was a Quranic scholar in that way. Taught the kids in Accrington. We lived in this little bit of Accrington called church. All the kids used to come and learn how to read Arabic with her and mm. learn the namaz and learn prayers. And So I just I just think, you know, it's amazing. When, it's only when you lose a parent. I mean, my dad's like in his 90s now. And my mum passed away in 2013. Oh. And I just think sometimes you just, you only look back and I remember saying to someone, when you lose your mom, it was like, it's like being really small and being really grown up in the same moment to me. Um, it felt like that. It felt like you were the child and the adult. Yeah. Right in the present moment with her. And that, it was a, it was a really powerful feeling. Yeah. And just to know that, you know, someone in your life, even though it, you might not have always had like a great relationship with them, had so much influence on even just where I went in life or how I pushed myself to understand my life beyond my Indian slash Pakistani upbringing uh -huh. to carve a path for yourself. And I always think about that Roosevelt quote about daring greatly. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to actually use put that quote in as a one thing <laughs> where I was going to put that, you know, the man in the arena as part of something I would treasure because... To me, daring greatly has been everything I am, really, you know. But it's not about having no fear. It's literally about having courage. Yes. To participate rather than stand at the side and be a spectator. And to me, I've always wanted to participate. I'm always the one who, somebody asked you a question to, like, join in in something. I'd put my hand up um, without even knowing what they were going to ask me. Yeah. Just so that I could be there. And then think about it after. <laughs> and that's how, how I encourage my students when I teach as well. Just, just put your hand up. Just be a participant because you don't know where that's going to lead you. Just go, you know, it's always a, the gift is always on the other side of that kind of fear yeah. to me. To me, I think that might have come from battling those things growing up or trying to find a path of being an artist whilst also loving science though and oh. not knowing what my path was really. Because I was so academic at school, and yet my creativity was something that I didn't have a lot of confidence in. Even though I could stand up in front of hundreds of people and sing. Yeah. You know, I was in the debating team, I remember. And me and Julie Hesmondhouse, we went to school together. We grew up together, me and Julie. So I've known Julie since we were like six. <laughs> so we sat the same, we sat at a desk together in primary school, and oh. then literally went through all of our education together. And it's very interesting to grow up with a person who has had a different, different career oh. and also is of a different ethnicity and yeah. and had different things to deal with, both working class. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it, that that in the end can be the most powerful thing, being both working class. Exactly. And we both talk about the fact that working class, is in, you know, it kind of empowers you and impedes you in the same moment. Chris Eccleston's always talking about the fact that, you know, that working class actors, you know, how that some people never see a narrative belonging in a, in a working class mouth. And that's a shame because, you know, I remember doing a, a sitcom pilot once. I was playing a woman who was like a professor and they were adamant I shouldn't do it in a northern accent. And I said, well, no, I can do that in whatever accent you want. But I said, but by the way, I'm northern, I've got two degrees. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between you understanding I've got two degrees because I'm saying it like this? Yeah. It's what we're fed. And how do we change what we're fed is by changing the perception of what people understand as their own narrative, you know? Yes, absolutely. Once you see people in those positions, yeah. in dramas and on television, you don't question it. You don't question it at all. No. So, you know, we're so much more than just growing up in the North. Yes. You know? But, of course, it's a very difficult thing for working-class lads or girls now to go into acting. Yeah. It's a difficult world to get into, first of all, because the income for young actors is so poor. Exactly. But I was thinking that about people who live in London. I mean, yeah. I've just been working in the West End for a year. How anyone mm. can live on... And people will assume that if you're going to be doing a play in the West yeah. End, you're going to be earning a lot of money. And yeah. actually, there's always those roles, and particularly for younger actors, yeah. where they're really earning yeah. very poorly. I mean, apart from the fact that the West End has no digs list, because they never assume anyone from London is going to work there. Has anybody ever thought of starting a dig list for the West End? Well, I've just literally been talking to... Really? About that. Yeah. It's such a good idea. So I think there's an equity campaign right now about 
about vetting digs as well, because some of the digs need to be vetted for actors. Yeah, you quite. Know? Yeah. And also for his technical career. I mean, I know somebody I noticed recently was told that they don't take stage managers because they tend to be flaky. It's like, <laughs> how rude. Are the hardest working people in the world. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> we can't trust you. It's like, are you joking? That's because they all wear black. That's it. <laughs> and have a tool belt, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane, really. Mad. But that thing about being able to just live wherever you want and work. When I left drama school, you know, I went off to do hair for like two years. First job out of drama school. Right. I did hair on a big rock and roll bus where I knew it. I, was, I think it was like 15 days after I left drama school. Wow. And it was an open audition from the stage. <laughs> and I got one of like 20 places. Me and Golda Rushabel, who's, you know, big in Bridgeton. It was our first job. We went off on a big rock and roll bus. Brilliant. And then came back and thought, oh, I wonder how this industry works now. Because I've just, <laughs> been, on this big, yeah. just <laughs> been on this huge arena tour for like two years. <laughs> Come back and I uh, used to clean houses in Kew. We used to clean the house before the cleaner turns up, actually. We used to, <laughs> yeah. Oh, do you need some cleaning? Oh, they've already cleaned it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get money, you know, thinking of, can I get on the tube or do I do the tube and then come back and eat that type of thing? It was only, yeah, yeah. thankfully, for a very short period of time, you know, touch wood and been very lucky to then. Yeah, but there still are people in that situation now, young actors. Yeah. And it's insane. It's insane to think that, you know, we work hard and we should be able to have the proper living and work like everybody else. Because I know it doesn't feel like work sometimes. You know, it feels like the most, you know, privileged job to be in, to be able to create art. Mm. But at the same time, we work long hours and, you know, you want to be able to have women who can have kids and, and have families and do all of those things. So. Yes, I can see your mum shining through you at the moment. Oh, well, that's <laughs> very nice. Your mum sounds like an extraordinary, what an extraordinary thing to have done, though, to have left the country you're born in, the country you're brought up in, and moved to what must have been such an alien. Oh, my God. So strange. And in the north of England, Accrington of all places, you know, could have gone to Mexico, could have gone somewhere like hot. Oh. And you think you could have gone anywhere in the world. Yeah. But you went to Accrington. <laughs> but then that's great as well because you think okay so you can be universal and cosmopolitan uh -huh. and have like really like roots like that as well yeah yeah and my parents are from a very small village in Pakistan even though my mum was like if there was a like a who do you think you are this she comes from like moguls she, she's like a descendant wow. of moguls my grandma and my dad's side is descendant of moguls and my mum was like her dad was like a mayor there's like blue blood in our family, running centuries, but and yet at the same time we lived in a house. Our first house had a tin bath and an outside toilet. That's a very great leveler for life. You think yes. it doesn't really matter because this is your life, you know. And then you have those people saying those ridiculous phrases like coming over here, taking our jobs. Invited over, you mean? Invited over, the, yeah. Invited over, he was. Uh -huh. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have been here. And he had a sponsor, my dad, oh. Arthur. Lived with Arthur and invited over and he worked all of his working life, you know. I mean, it's amazing, really. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, because I think if you think in a time capsule, you open it up and go, oh, look at that. Put those beads and that perfume in. That perfume, imagine when the beads. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. Okay, so we've got two left, one that you want to keep right. and one you want to forget. So my, my last keep is I've travelled and trekked on my own for many years as a kind of person who loves just travelling and right. being a kind of intrepid traveller. Yeah. And I've been everywhere, in the, you know, I've been in lots of places. I've travelled all around the, like, the Greek islands and I went to like, Australia, Africa. But the, my most fascinating trip, I went to South America, I went to Peru. So the first year I went to Peru, I went to do the Inca Trail. So what I'm putting in the box is, is a memory of going this year after that, actually, after I went to do the Inca Trail. Oh. Like my life changed, I met Dave, uh, we've been together nearly 20 years now. And then I got asked to go and make a documentary, Channel 4, back to Peru, but in the Amazon, about uh, ayahuasca, about healing herbs. And I've always been like interested in my mum being a healer, a Sufi healer, and having that kind of line open to me in life, I think. Uh -huh. There's a kind of openness to that stuff. So I went with Tony Wilson to uh, the Amazon to work with shamans and take ayahuasca. And that, as a memory to me, apart from the fact that Tony was some, being a seminal person in my music life, because oh. I was a big Joy Division fan, big, you know, Manchester Hacienda fan of the music, oh. and him 
being so open all the time and so like mouthy and just <laughs> someone who just wanted to just say what he felt. And then I found myself sitting on a plane with him going to Peru. So it's <laughs> like, <laughs> so you find in your life suddenly, yeah. you know. Did you turn into a fangirl? I, I, am a, I used to call him Mr. Bourgeois just because he <laughs> used to wind him up because he's not a by no means bourgeois at all. No. But we had an extraordinary trip. He used to call me serotonin. It's <laughs> why so he always used to serotonin. <laughs> because apart from the fact that travelling always made me happy, but then being in the Amazon made me happy. And just learning and being in this kind of courageous moment where you're taking, working with shamans and going on journey that I had no idea was going to change my life in such a kind of... In a, in a way that was actually very profound, but also very quiet oh. at the same time, which most kind of epiphanies are not flashes of lightning there. No. They're very quiet. And suddenly your life has taken a different turn, which is oh. a very beautiful thing. How did it change life for you then? I mean, apart from being creative just to go off, uh, I've been asked to go and work with shamans. And ayahuasca itself, taken it, it's an indigenous country. It wasn't just a made-for-telly thing. We oh. went and worked for the shamans who used to sing to the plants. Oh. Real shamans who live it for the earth and have such a connection to the earth where they can hear things we don't hear on for lots of dimensions. Going and living with a tribe as well in, in the Amazon. Wow. And understanding that thing of how tribes like that are then becoming smaller and smaller and losing their indigenous rights as well. Oh. And how they have to survive and how their actual real indigenous lives it's so beautiful how they cook with them and dance with them and sing with them and you just feel as if you're as privileged actually as a privilege to even be a part of learning about yourself with people like that so it's a completely different cultural experience because you don't have the same schema or the same trappings of looking at life no. as a person who literally tells you right here's chicken and we've got to kill this chicken now otherwise we won't eat because you won't be going to the supermarket. So yours today is the task to kill this chicken. And then, you know, and the shaman talking to you about the circle of life. And so you have this kind of moment where you go, okay, so I these are like life-changing things. Um, Learning about living, but really existing and living and sharing and being part of a community that helps each other and that is there for each other. And, and also just the healing element of all of their understanding of the, first of the human mind and the human condition. Right. And and just the way that they see everything being connected, whether your disease as such, if you split that word into two words, disease, is part of something that's maybe trapped or stuck or something's attached. Um, and that they find a way to understand holistically how to make you better. And that's what those herbs are about, right. about illuminating yourself to yourself, which is why I learned about ayahuasca, oh. is that it illuminates you to you. You speak to yourself in a way that you've never spoken to yourself before. Is that funny? I assumed that typically that you'd always had that sort of attitude. Well, kind of I have, but it's like Taoism. Like these things are journeys of life, you know. Uh -huh. You go through cycles at which you get what I call spiritual winters, where that part of you's not being fed, maybe. Maybe we're just running in a kind of where we've not attended to ourselves for a long time. Yeah, yeah. It's like an engine idling yeah. in the background. And then yeah. suddenly you find yourself and you go, oh, wow. That's not new to me. That's just me coming home again. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I can go and start on another cycle. Yes. And then what happens is you understand that it's balance, that you need to be able to go somewhere, maybe get lost, and then find yourself again. And it's a continuous cycle of those things. Yeah, it's a lovely way to describe it, for it not to be like a road to Damascus with a no. blinding light, but actually a gentle sort of easing open of a door and you suddenly thinking, oh, I see. And each time you arrive back, I think, I mean, what, God, what do I know? I'm 53 years old. You know, I'll probably know when I die. No. But there's like, you know, each time you arrive back at a place that's, you feel as if there's been a shift. You're always going towards understanding and being better or knowing how those things serve you better. Yeah. And those things, I like to think that maybe things like going and having a new experience, whether it's whether you've just done like your first bungee jump or something, yeah. that what it does is it gives you a pathway to have courage in a different in a different place. Mm. Put yourself in a different thing and sit and see if something shifts for you, rather than being fearful and 
going, oh, I can't. I'm scared to do that. Or a lot of people just say, oh, I don't do that. Yeah, I don't do that. As if they've been, you know, there's a rule. Yeah, and it's a thing that we hide behind. But a lot of time that comes from actually being scared of it originally and then eventually deciding, do you know what, I'm just never going to do it. Or in fact, it being something you want to do, Yeah. but you're scared of it. And that's the worst situation, that you would really like to be able to do that. And you never had the courage, yeah, to do it. I was thinking that about, like, I played Shirley Valentine a few years back. And that was something I never thought I'd want to do, is be on stage on my own, doing a one-woman play that's 15,000 words. Because I always think I, I like working with people. I like, I like reacting. Because you understand so much about how you react rather than how you act. Oh. Reacting is part of how you understand yourself a lot. And it was quite a big thing for me because I'd not only did I do it, but I also asked Willie Russell if I could reset it to Accrington, which he allowed me to do. No, and I reset it, uh, which meant I rewrote certain bits. Wow. And he's never let anyone do that in 30 years. No. And with his grace and kindness, they said, oh, we'll get you a writer. I said, well, they'll only write what I'm saying, so I might as well write it myself. Oh. So I started really reading the play and understanding how to make that belong to me and people I knew. Yeah, yeah. And then I had to go and sit and read it to him in his office. <laughs> and uh, it's as terrifying as it sounds. Um, with the director, with Lottie. And I said, he said, right, you sit there and you read that to me now. And I read it to him. And then every now and then he'd go, you're just writing that because it's funny. Or is it, does it have a purpose? And he'd go, well, it's funny as well. I'd go, hang on, I've got more. I've got, I always have alternatives to what he had uh, written alternatives. <laughs> in. And then at the end, he just went, That'll be all right. You'll be all right doing that. You can do that. You do it. Brilliant. And then he said to me, why have you not written, like, how have you not written before why? Because it was kind of my first foreign to properly writing. And again, it's one of those things where you go, I don't know, something scares you about having too many hats on. Yes. Oh, you've stopped acting now, have you? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I'm an actor and a director. And actually, one of the things I did in lockdown, I directed and I acted in it. So I was very happy about that. Because mm. you think, well, I can do both those things. And also, I, you know, I can edit and done. I've never directed. I'd quite like to have a go at him. Have you never directed? I've, nobody's ever asked me. You'd be brilliant. I should tell them. Oh, you need to just do it. Yeah, it's true. Just find someone and do it. Do it. You know, that thing about just being brave, daring. Mm-hmm. We're back to daring greatly. Yeah. I think everything's through that kind of prison, really. Daring greatly, going to pro, spending time with Tony. I remember being at, um, we had a stopover in Barbados which was very bizarre, just to change planes. <laughs> and he sat there and was painting his nails. And then we were allowed to go on the plane with a cocktail and he just wandered on with his cocktail with his nails done. He's so bourgeois, isn't he? <laughs> I just thought, here is this man who I know is so northern, you know, <laughs> runs a hacienda, used to run the hacienda. And, yeah. And his friends would like everybody. A 24-hour party person. And yeah. then he's... He's doing his nails and having a cocktail. <laughs> he was just fabulous. And I'll never forget him in that way and the fact that he was quite taken aback by taking ayahuasca because he, he didn't know then that he had cancer. But I think it, it illuminated a lot to him. And subsequently, I think then he sent Sean Ryder off to that particular place where we did ayahuasca to go and work with the shamans. But I remember I'd, I'd given up, before I went there, I'd given up a big TV job to go to do that. And to me, that was, it was, it talked about like balance and what's important in your life. And I was thinking, I'll never get that. TV sometimes acting in that kind of way can sometimes be not as fulfilling as going and doing something that really truly does shift you. Yeah. You know, because we got so obsessed and I have been, you know, in pursuit of what? What are we pursuing? Because there's no ladder in the art industry. No. And I know that. Quite a few ladders, but it's, um, it's also full of lots of snakes. It is. I like to <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I like to see it as a tree. Any one of those branches can lead up or down, but none of them lead you away from the tree, which is your one thing that you're on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always see that that tree is, you know, there's no, it's no linear structure. I just think sometimes, you know, over the years when, especially I think being Asian, as I've grown on, understanding how many massive things I've done. And some of those things having absolutely zero trajectory, mm-hmm. as if they would have now. If I did some of the things I did in the 90s now, I'd be on, I'd get an Emmy off for something, you know. Yeah. But I think there was no trajectory then to go, wow, this person is brilliant. 
what can we put her in next? And yet a lot, quite a lot of my colleagues were given that platform to go into something next. Yeah. And that's, that's what I think. And I think, well, do you know what? You can either sit there and go, did I choose wrong? But you go, do you know what? No. Because I just choose because I love what I always try to think that I choose wisely and discerning about what I don't want to do and make space for things that I do want to do by sitting in that slight discomfort, you know, whether it's monetary or... Yeah, yeah. And of course, in that ever-growing tree, yeah. you go down other branches. That's it. Just all part of what, you know, living a life that you have integrity about, I think. Yeah. And daring greatly and choosing wisely, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's put that memory of going to Peru into the time gap. With Tony, yeah. That's the fourth lovely thing. Lovely so we've got thing. one thing you'd like to forget. Well, the thing I'd like to forget is the thing I'm in right now, which is menopause. You know, and it's weird because I'm actually post-menopause, I suppose. Menopause apparently is, is like a one day. <laughs> yeah. It's like a weird time thing where... Yeah, perimenopause, yeah. isn't it? There's perimenopause, menopause like a day. Oh, no, you've passed uh, that now, you're post-menopause. Then you're post-menopausal. But I think it's that thing of, it's not the fact that you want to bury it. I think what's interesting, the more you learn about it, which I do, because I'm really into like herbs, natural things, and understanding how holistically, you know, all of our cells work. Um. People talk about, you know, getting all sorts of different symptoms, brain fog. and But actually, I've done some of my best work actually in this bit, what was called perimenopause or menopause, and not having brain fog as such. And maybe, I don't know why that is. But also just being able to recently talk to other women who talk about it like that. I've got the minimum. <laughs> like Les Dawson. And doctors who talk about oh it like God. that. Oh, my God. And my GP, who literally by his own admission goes, I just want you to know I know nothing about it. The GP. <laughs> you're a doctor. And you go, oh, thanks for being so honest, but what do I do with that information? You're my GP. Yeah. Go and find out about it then, because half of us are women. And they say that they've had about 10 days of training on that. It's really appalling. I know I know about this because yeah. my wife has been perimenopausal for years. Yeah. And I think I just, like, for years and years. I mean, I'm 53 now. I think my proper, like, why I thought, wow, I think I'm going a bit mad here, hit me when I literally, as I turned 50, next day, Literally, <laughs> is it? Does it happen so quick? Is it like the next day? Am I like, no. <laughs> I'm in my menopause only day after I'm fifty, but I think the ten years before that, right? You know, depleting hormones and stuff. Just try and understand that and think, oh my god, how? And I'd started taking uh, some HRT estrogen after really researching quite widely about. You know, I do a lot of meditation and I dance, I move, I run, and just understanding maybe what something that I may have needed and then thinking god I could have done with that like last 10 years up mm. and that's what we understand is that they never talk about perimenopause as having you needing very similar attention to that yeah as you do later on it's, it's just the earlier phase of it that's all but it is the women who are going through it who are the experts about it isn't it yeah hardly anybody else knows anything about it no and my, my wife actually the doctor I think said well I would put you on HRT but it's not very safe it can and, and she said no there's rubbish that's it's old rubbish. science old science it's very old science she said do you, do you really I don't know where you read that but you may yeah. have read it 20 years ago but it's just not true it's the same peddling of nonsense that they had about fat being bad for you you know certain oh. certain fats like butter is like actually really good for your system yeah and yet for years they're going don't have butter because that's really bad or like Edwina Curry going don't eat eggs, you know, and, and just misguiding the public about mm -hmm. the science of it all. And also the fact that we're really like individual people, you would never get the same as somebody else, but you could see a recognition in, in other women. And as soon as you start talking about it, like I was at work just recently, even in when I was, the plays I've been doing, working with similar age women, or even slightly younger going, wow, is that what's going on? Is that what's happening? I wonder why this happened to me. Yeah. And then you be able to talk and then you go, who talks like this? Thankfully, we can talk. I remember mentioning it in the room full of men the other day. I don't even know what I said. I said something about, oh, slightly menopause, isn't it? And it literally looked like as if I just punched him. There was like a sci-fi. It was like a sci-fi <laughs> movie. How old were they? they were, were they all young? No. They're in their 50s, no? all of them. All of these oh, men. Oh, my God. All of them. And it, like, honestly, it looked like I just asked them for sex. It was like literally <laughs> insane. <laughs> Uh, oh god how embarrassing it was like are we having a laugh here you know we're yeah. all the same age can't we just talk about the, I don't have to be like Les Dawson and say it quietly 
You know? I've noticed that women are much more open about it yeah. now. But then it's a very different thing for almost every woman. It's a, it's a the, the variations in it, the changes that happen, the speed with which it happens. Yeah, it's it's not at all consistent. No. It's not like we all do this and then we all go through that and then it's over by then. My wife is sixty three. Wow, is she still going through it now? Or? Still waiting to become menopausal. Wow, that's extraordinary. I think also if you had like the pursuit of understanding it, so that you can navigate it in ways for lots. You know, there's so many ways of looking at it. Yeah, And also, like, I, I remember, because I got my period very, very young, I was like nine, so I think that might be the reason why now I'm not, like, going into my 60s and going to get it later. Well, but the hormone thing and progesterone thing and the estrogen, the testosterone. Yeah. You know, and also the blood tests. You can't have a blood test for your hormones unless you actually really demand it. Because oh. you think you might be menopausal uh-huh. otherwise that you don't you can't get it can you they go oh we don't do that no and you go well i'd really like you to please and they don't even test your progesterone in those tests i mean it's insane <laughs> insane, <It's> insane. <laughs> you know and it's the stark thing about all that is that they went yeah because normally when women got through menopause they only actually lived another 10 years uh-huh. so nobody really cared no because they're menopause and then you die that's the thinking was yeah, they've got 10 years after menopause, so nobody really cares. And also with all those women's things, it's described as women's things, women's problems. You know, it's like, well, just keep quiet about it, please. Don't bother us with it. That's your burden. You were born to suffer this, so get on with it. And you sort of go, hang on a minute, we're in some sort of religious sect here. What's going exactly. on? <laughs> yeah. It's the same as, like, being unclean, which it makes you really, like, go, okay, how interested are we in other people? Not very. Um. But actually, what's interesting is how different people look at these cycles of life, you know, especially for, for men and for women particularly, you know, and that, that there's certain you're, just, you're, like, not included in things, you know, you have to go in that hut over there if you're menstruating. Wow. Or actually, like, if you, even if, like, during Ramadan, you're not, you're not allowed to fast if you're menstruating as a woman. So you go, okay, why is that? And, and some first you go, wow, that's, like, really misogynistic and then actually when you look into it when you look into the reality of that the truth it was through the fact that you they might think that you might be more listless because you're losing blood so they're giving you you need to eat so when you're young you go that's really misogynistic you're not allowing me to do that just because i'm i'm on a period and then you go oh i see you actually want it's actually much more kind of caring than we think if it's taken in its proper like origin yeah yeah but it can very easily turn around the other way. Yeah, you could very easily be go go and sit in that hut now over there. Yeah, on your own. To be yeah. Oh, the problem with sort of saying, well, at certain times we have the right to exclude you from society, yeah. means that generally we have the right to exclude you from society. And you can use any excuse to do that. Uh-huh. And menopause is one of those things that you just go, I don't want to understand that woman. Well, I think you're very wise to put that whole experience of the menopause into the time capsule and bury it for yourself. But we ought to be opening it up for everybody else. People are so ignorant about it. But do we bury it? And then when we get it out, we can see what we've learned. Maybe that's... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's up to you when you look back at these things. That maybe when you, when you dig it up, you go, oh, I can't believe that's how we thought about that. No. Or look how easy it is to deal with that. Yeah. And look at now, now they've got a pill and now I'm only on menopause for a day. Yeah. <laughs> Had men been going through that from the age of 45 to 60, then I have a feeling that something would have been invented or discovered. They do say there's like a male menopause, don't they? What is it? I don't know. It's just called grumpy old bastard. I mean, <laughs> bit of road rage. Yeah, having man flu. <laughs> it's very true. Oh, uh, well. Mina, how lovely to talk oh, to you. How lovely. Thank you so much for asking. No, my pleasure. I'm far too mad to be in a podcast, aren't really. Just talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Mina Anwar. I hope you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more. If so, do please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your pods. And if you enjoyed it a lot, we'd love you to rate the show and maybe leave a nice comment or review, which you can do on some providers. If you don't have time for that, thanks for listening anyway. We've got loads more available, so check them out and tell your friends. 
You can listen to the theme tune by Past the Peas Music on Spotify, and if you follow me and my time capsule on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, then you'll hear all the things we've been up to and what's coming up. You can also very easily contact us that way if you have any questions or requests. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens, which is available without ads if you subscribe for a very small monthly fee to Acast+. Plus. All the money goes back into making more of this, though I say it myself, excellent podcast. I thank you kindly. Right, I'm off to pack. I'm spending a long weekend in Hastings. It's only two days, but let's face it, any time spent in Hastings seems long. I hope it's a better hotel than last time. That looked like Dracula's castle on the seafront. The door was locked, so I knocked, and then I knocked again, and I knocked and knocked and knocked, and no one answered. I nearly gave up, but then I noticed that they had this large knob by the side of the door, so I pulled that, thinking it might be a bell. And instantly the door opened, and the hotelier said, That'll be ten pounds, please. I said, What? Ten pounds? Why? He said, You've just launched the lifeboat. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.